and let us pray. Startle us with your word, O God, this day, and grant that our hearts would be ready to receive all that you have already said to us in this hour of worship, and all that our imaginations can fathom in these moments. Grant that our hearts would be ready for your coming in new ways this day, through Christ. Amen. If there was ever a time in history that the world needs Advent, it is now. The world seems to be on a collision course with terrorist attacks, police brutality, racially motivated destruction, a presidential campaign that sometimes feels like a reality TV show, and a general sense that things are sort of spinning out of control. And if there was ever a time in the days of our individual lives that we need Advent, it's now. The landscape of our relationships may mirror the unsettled, un upsetting world's theater. Trust broken in intimate relationships, violence and disrespect shocking even the most together of us, addiction, mental illness, you name it, the world seems like it is just going out of control. And so a little dose of beauty, a little respite from the cover stories, a baby, a mother, a dawning light at the flickering edges of deep darkness would bring an extra measure of balm to our weary, worn spirits. But the scripture readings for this first Sunday in Advent, prescribed by the common lectionary, plunge the night-blinded pilgrims into deeper darkness. Both the passage from 1 Thessalonians and from the Gospel of Luke stir up our anxiety. Not only are we faced with all that arises from the headlines, but also Jesus' words to his disciples are scary. And the message is to note the signs, the sun and the moon and the stars, distress among the nations, confused by tsunami forces, gripping fear. It's enough to get even the calmest among us in high anxiety mode because we see it all around us as well, the distress, the fear, the signs. In the course of human history, there have been many rough eras. But before we rush to appropriate a 2,000-year-old biblical text to the 21st century world, it's important to do a close reading of the biblical setting to which this message to the church at Thessalonica and the Gospel of Luke were addressed. The letter to the Thessalonians is the earliest writing we have in the New Testament canon. Written about 51 common era, it is the earliest evidence we have for the existence of Christianity. The letter was written to a church that was in distress. Thessalonica was the capital city of the Roman province of Macedonia, and it seemed to be a rough place, a place that was giving most Christians at that moment a pretty hard time. When Paul came there to preach, he was actually arrested 
and later released. The Christians in that community, the early church of Thessalonica, were also outrightly being persecuted by the people around them and wanting them to turn back to their former ways. And so these faithful ones are waiting, as Paul is himself, with longing hearts for the promised resurrection of Jesus to return in glory. In Luke's gospel, the disciples are waiting with Jesus actually at the end of his ministry. And here we are plunged into a different kind of waiting, one that is fearing the departure of their beloved master, one that wants to hold on to the relationship as it is, one that comes at a very difficult political and theological moment. They want to trust Jesus' words, but they are clearly afraid. And we can imagine the shaking in the disciples' voices when they asked Jesus earlier in chapter 21, Teacher, when will this happen? How will we know when the temple will be destroyed? Our life will come apart. How will we know? Give us some guidelines, please. It is an anxious time. But it's important to note that Luke's gospel was circulated in the early Christian community at the time when the temple in Jerusalem was being destroyed, 70 CE. They were hearing Jesus' words through the reality of what he had spoken about, the devastation in Jerusalem. He had detailed an hour of great distress for all the people, and he assures them that at that moment of great distress, he will return in glory like the fig tree when the sprouting leaves appear. At that moment, new life is near. When you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. These words must have been deeply comforting to those disciples. But I have a feeling that for many of us in this room, the Advent focus on Jesus' return is something that either strikes us as a snappy metaphor or as outlandish. As a matter of fact, I think that for many of us, there is no part of New Testament faith that is more alien to mainline Protestantism, at least, than the doctrine of the Second Coming. A couple years ago, I taught a class on the book of Revelation at a church in Minnesota where I was living at the time. I was stunned that of the 30 people sitting in the room, only two of them had ever opened or cracked open that book in the Bible, Revelation. There was an assumption on the part of those who ventured out for that Lenten series that all the grotesque, Hebraic, apocalyptic messages were so cloaked in a far-off worldview that they were irrelevant for our time. And even more, though, the return of Christ as an actual phenomenon seemed outlandish. But it's understandable, because the doctrine of the Second Coming is often associated with the lunatic fringe, the millennial sects climbing to the top of hills in their white robes to wait for the end of the world that never comes. Well, we may not believe that Jesus' return will happen in the fantastic, jaw-dropping way described in the text about end times, but that doesn't rule out the reality 
that we are still in a state of waiting and watching for something, for someone to say a word, to awaken hope, to quell our anxiety. I've been thinking a lot about anxiety recently because I feel like everyone I know is dealing with it in one way or another and for good reason. I certainly hold a measure of anxiety myself as I look out onto the world. And what is tough about anxiety is that it seems to manifest itself as both a disease and an addiction, as Presbyterian minister Frederick Buechner suggests. He says, partly perhaps because you can't help it, and partly because for some dark reason you choose not to help it. You torment yourself with the detailed vision of the worst that can possibly happen. The nagging headache turns into, in your mind, a brain tumor. Or when your teenage son fails to get off the plane you've gone to meet, you see his plane or his picture being tacked up in the post office among the missing. As the latest Mideast or, or Sub-Saharan Africa or European crisis boils, you wait for the special bulletins that all over the, all over the world sittings are being evacuated. If Woody Allen were to play your part on a screen, you'd be rolling in the aisles with the rest of them, but you're not cracking a smile with that screen inside your own head. It almost becomes a mind game, this control of anxiety, since the worst things that are apt to happen are the things you don't see coming. There's a kind of magic whereby if you can only see them coming or predict them or somehow consider them, that you will prevent them from happening. It is undeniable that ours is an age in which enormous and growing number of people suffer from anxiety. According to the National Institute, Institute of Mental Health, anxiety disorders affect over 18% of the adult population in the United States, some 40 million people. By comparison, mood disorders, depression, bipolar illness affect 9.5%. That makes anxiety the most common psychiatric situation by a wide margin. Indeed, many of us wait in this season of Advent with a lot of anxiety. And perhaps it is no coincidence that these anxious texts ask us to face the anxiety to pin the anxiety on the one who casts the disruptive word. Jesus' fearless articulation of distress helps us trust that we are getting the straight story. Jesus' words to the disciples do not minimize the challenges. Jesus' words do not explain away the events as God's will or God's judgment or God's testing, but rather the message clearly states that the upsetting, violating events portend that God's redemption is near. And this is only a continuation of a message that came earlier at the announcement at the coming of the infant, God incarnate, the strangeness and peculiarity of which can be proclaimed only with the help 
of apocalyptic revelatory language. We see it in the Christmas story with the wonders such as stars guiding magi and shepherds in fields dazzled by the beating of a thousand wings and voices high and wild. This message is world-shaping, consciousness-shattering. And so Christ's call to watch, to stand vigilant, because Christ's call, come hell or high water, is that the light has dawned and will dawn once more. My friends, my people, God in Christ is returning because God wants to be with the people and God wants to redeem us. Our broken and hurting world needs Christ to come and this time of vigilant watch is the time we prepare to receive him. Will one day the sky open up and Jesus return as he said on a cloud with power and great glory? Well, this may have been the way the early church thought it would happen, and it has sustained oppressed peoples for century. Is it any wonder that the apocalyptic literature in the Bible is always addressed to threatened, marginalized communities? Is it any wonder that the form of this literature is resistance literature? Writer Kathleen Norris remind us, those who speak the word of apocalypse, Daniel addressing the nation of Israel in exile, Jesus on the road to Calvary, weeping over Jerusalem, John of Patmos writing from prison to the persecuted Christians of the first century have little stake in the status quo. But we not, must not dismiss it too quickly because even dismissing the kind of watching that would assume that Jesus will return in all his glory is what these texts call us to do. Watching and waiting for the risen and returning Christ may be much more challenging than receiving the helpless infant, but Advent includes both. And though the splendor, the love, the great hope for this world came in the form of a vulnerable child out back in a cave hewn for animal shelter, the power of Advent hope is that we await the fullness of the risen Christ, whose reach is cosmic and whose heart is tender. Perhaps the message of Advent is best heard by the vulnerable, by those whose hearts are shattered by loss or grief or undoing, and perhaps today you can even momentarily entertain the preposterous thought that maybe, just maybe, Jesus will return. This Advent watch is a cosmic watch, a watch that plunges us deeply into Advent, a time that calls us to do what may be the most radical act of our lives to truly believe that Jesus is coming. I believe that is why these texts show up on the first Sunday of the Christian New Year. It plants us where our faith plants us, on the rim of the universe, at the edge, and yes, on edge, because it is on the fault lines that the myth of self-sufficiency and safety are shattered. 
And we understand what biblical scholar Brian Blunt comment, God's protection and promise will be with those who stand with God and stand for God's lordship in the present. It is there that we begin to trust that new life springs from the ashes, a phoenix from all that undoes us. In a world that assumes that God is in charge, then the outcome is fantastic, unimaginable, wild beyond our most exquisite dreams. And this is not some pie-in-the-sky outcome, but what is at stake is our very lives, for Christ's sake. Madeline Lingle, writer of The Fantastic, tells the story of one night at her dinner table when she was hosting two college students. In the course of the conversations, the students asked her rather condescendingly if she really needed God in order to be happy. She said, yes, I do. I cannot do it on my own. Simply acknowledging my lack of ability to be in control of the vast technological complexes in my life is, has set me free from its steel net. Okay, they agreed. Sure, we know we can't control traffic jams and sanitation department strikes and fluid academics, said the students, but certainly you can't believe in heaven, can you? All that pie-in-the-sky stuff. Lingle replied, certainly not pie-in-the-sky. Whoever dreamed up that one didn't have much imagination. But the Beatitudes tell me that happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All I know for now is that wherever God is, heaven is. If I don't have glimpses of it here and now, I'm not going to know it anywhere else. This is the precise place where Advent Watch meets us. It is the places where we find ourselves so ready for love to return that we can hardly stand it. This is where God meets us in hope. And it is our part to take up such persistent watching with every fiber of our being and longing that pulls us toward this promise of Jesus' return. The coming of Jesus is not only a gaze to the past, but it is planted firmly in every fiber of our being. And though our anxiety may get the best of us as we look at this world that seems to be veering toward a cosmic upending, Jesus asks that we look at the fig tree and all trees, for when the leaves return, when these things are taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Thanks and glory be to Christ. Amen. <laughs>